0: Welcome to the Cultivate podcast. My name is Rachel. We are back with CJ. Hello, And we are going to talk about week 7 of this Cultivate podcast. So that is the fourth week in the second book where we are talking about prayer. So again, we started off learning about who God is through the three parts of the Trinity, and now we are walking through the Lord's Prayer to learn directly from Jesus how to pray and how to have relationship with God. So CJ, what part of the Lord's Prayer are we on this week?
1: We are on the very last part of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Thy, uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Which is a bit of an interesting thing because not all of the versions of the Lord Prayer, Lord's Prayer in the New Testament have that. And some of the earliest uh, manuscripts of the New Testament also don't have that. It just ends after the word evil. But uh, it, some of the manuscripts we have do have it. And then a lot of the documents from the early church also include it. And the church historically has just accepted this as a, a part of the Lord's Prayer. There's some reasons that people have like guessed why it was appended on if it mm-hmm. was appended later, but is a perfectly great part of the Lord's Prayer uh, and is normally included in most uh, like liturgical uses of it. Uh, and when you hear it around, most, most places don't stop with evil, but if you do, it's okay. It's not bad. But this is called kind of the doxology of the Lord's Prayer,
0: just... and it's
1: uh, tagged on the end there.
0: Wow, I honestly never knew that. And yep. I feel like this is such, I don't know, I like this ending. It's great.
1: Yeah. Well, said I wasn't going to get into it, but we will. Some people speculate that uh, you don't want to end a prayer on the word evil yeah. right, and deliver us from evil. And like, that's the end. Like, that's a really abrupt yeah. end and kind of a strange <laughs> way of ending. Yeah. Uh, so they kind of tagged this on there at the end to make it end on a more, I don't know. Uh,
0: Heavenly? In- no, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, Interesting. So
1: we don't know. I mean, the speculation, obviously, we don't know, mm-hmm. but it is super early so even though it's not in a few of the early manuscripts it's also another it is another manuscripts and then the church has historically prayed it
0: amazing okay cool. so what scripture are we going to look at to talk about this last little section of the lord's prayer
1: yeah we picked a an odd an odd <laughs> one yep. i think uh, <laughs> part of that was me i uh you know i've been around csf a while and CJ's so it's odd so yeah and well i've been around a while i've written a lot of the curriculums over the years and we kind of have these avenues we tend to go down mm-hmm. and we tend to focus on, you know, the same passages over and over for Mm -hmm. large, uh, or largely, you know, we do this over and over. Uh, So, I wanted to pick one that uh, at least I've never done before, but that I think does hit some of the themes that are contained in this section of the Lord's Prayer. So, we are going to Revelation. Mm -hmm. Revelation chapter 19. So, we're out in the very end of the Bible, a book we don't engage a lot with in um, curriculum. So, thought we'd do it this time Mm -hmm. for fun.
0: Yeah. So, Like CJ said, the Book of Revelation often, I think, even in the church, is kind of ignored, or it's. I feel like it's either ignored or it's like overly like looked to to figure out like when is the end of the world. Mm -hmm. It's like this very interesting book. Um, There's a couple. Bible project videos that just, like, talk about the overview of, like, apocalyptic literature and, like, even Revelation, and I highly encourage you to watch those if you're, like, weirded out to the max by reading this or if you're, like, triggered from your Sunday school in, like, fifth grade. Just, like, go watch those. It'll be so helpful. But... Maybe, could you help clarify what we should focus on when reading this and what we shouldn't?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about Revelation for just a second. You uh, used a word there that's good, apocalyptic. Um, this falls in a specific genre of um, uh, Bible writings. Uh, there's a couple other sections of Daniel that are apocalyptic, which just means a mm-hmm. kind of unveiling. And so the Apostle John wrote this traditionally on the island of Patmos after he survived being boiled alive. So that was that's a pretty cool little <laughs> wow. thing. Um it is meant to be the kind of unveiling. It is where you're peeking behind the curtain and seeing the, the cosmic and spiritual battle and the stakes of that battle um, in the world. Um, I do think you're right that this is either ignored because, a it's, a, it's a weird book. Yeah. And I think, like, everyone can admit that. It's an odd book. It's filled with a lot of odd stories and a lot of odd characters doing odd things mm-hmm. like multi-headed dragons and all of this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, And so it's not surprising that it's ignored. Because it's difficult to read. Um, or it's obsessed on mm-hmm. or obsessed about uh from certain wings of the church. It, it was even kind of attempted to be fictionalized in the the uh that book series oh, Left what was, yeah, <laughs> Left Behind. Yeah. Tim Lahaye. <laughs> uh thankfully our audience is probably too young to have like yeah, been I hope so. out when that was like being released and all of the excitement around that. Um, not that they're bad fiction books, but they are fiction books. Um and, you know, when people read them, it's like, this is definitely what's going to happen and at the end times. Mm-hmm. It just became problematic, I think. But uh, I think that boom is now over, at least the, the book series boom. But yeah, some people focus on it and think like, okay, well, I need to read this and figure out what exactly is going to happen at the end mm-hmm. times. Um, and when the end times is going to happen. And you have these people, even today, that are still predicting when the end times is going to come, you know, after the fourth blood moon or Mm -hmm. after, you know, X, Y, and Z happens in the Middle East or in, you know, 2012 or whatever it is. Uh, There's probably a kind of unhealthy engagement with apocalyptic literature in the scripture uh, that, you know, leads to some of these problems. So, we want to avoid that. We are only reading a section of Revelation 19. It's where um, Jesus comes back. And uh, some of the things you probably shouldn't focus on to make a group healthy probably shouldn't be arguing in your group about whether Revelation is literal, whether mm-hmm. it's metaphorical, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um Honestly, I mean, they're fine conversations to have at some point, but it's not the purpose of this mm-hmm. week, right? I mean, we're using Revelation as a way of exploring the themes that come up in the Lord's Prayer, themes that are meant to help us pray better and to grow in intimacy with the Lord. Not necessarily so that we can win an argument about how to read this book literally or symbolically. The other thing I would avoid is reading past Revelation 19, right after Revelation 19 is Revelation 20, mm-hmm. um, and in Revelation 20 is the discussion of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and that is also just a conversation <laughs> rife with controversy about mm-hmm. how do we interpret this? What does this mean? Are we pre-millennialists, post-millennialists, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. All fun and interesting conversations to have, but not even remotely the main focus of what we're trying to do in this curriculum. So, if you do find yourself going down those rabbit trails in so far as they contribute to um, growing our intimacy with the Lord in prayer, rock and roll. But if they're not, you know, maybe exercise some uh, leadership uh, skills (laughs) and try and divert the conversation back to something more fruitful.
0: Yeah, so like what I hear you saying like these are great conversations to have just mm-hmm. not in this setting. Yep. Cuz we want to like you said the the focus of this book is to facilitate relationship with God. And we want to like seek deeper intimacy with him through what we're learning about prayer. And that's more of the focus of our group. Definitely. I week.
1: don't want like don't hear me as saying that those questions are irrelevant and don't mm-hmm. hear me hear me as saying that those questions are um, not going to help you relate to God better. I think yeah. I'm just saying maybe this context, these kind of groups, our core groups, um, and the themes that we're talking about this year are just not the context to have those conversations, especially when they are contentious conversations that a lot of people like to engage in uh, in severely <laughs> emotional ways. Yeah. Or, um, yeah, I've just not seen a lot of those discussions go really well. Uh, and I think... In core groups, probably just isn't the place for it. But definitely have those conversations other places. It should be a question in your mind, how am I meant to read this book? What is this book meant to mean to the church and mm-hmm. to the history? And what is it meant to mean um, to me in my life? Those are questions you have to answer, for sure, about every piece of Scripture. Um, just some of the specific arguments that happen in evangelical circles uh, tend to happen in unhealthy ways and probably aren't going to be super productive in your group. Absolutely. If for whatever reason you disregard that advice completely and decide to spend the whole group talking about it and it's a fruitful conversation, I mean, rock and roll, you're the leader.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So um, the way we kind of just like won't even talk about this revelation passage is maybe even going line by line through this last little section of the Lord's Prayer. So my first question for you, CJ, is how is like for thine is the kingdom relevant to revelation? What does it show us?
1: Yeah, so uh, I guess I didn't actually give an overview of like, what Revelation was. Anyway, it's it's a story that is um, about a cosmic battle that's happening. And then in Revelation 19, Christ comes back, right? So we have all of these horsemen and all of these characters pop up in the early parts of Revelation. And then we have this guy on a pale horse, uh, not a pale horse. We have the, the rider um, on the white horse who's coming. And uh, it, this is Christ, right? It tells us that his name is the King of Kings. It calls mm-hmm. him the Word of God. Um, and this is really Christ coming back as the King. He's coming back to exert His reign, uh, and so I think kingdom talk now um, is seen in kind of its fullest instantiation, its fullest its fulfillment in this image of Christ coming back in glory and exerting His reign. Um, so when we pray, "For thine is the kingdom," I think there are a few things that this is this is doing to us as we pray. I think one of the things is it's directing our gaze toward our true king. Um, We live in a time where our true king is present through the Holy Spirit with us and in us, but he's also not here yet, Mm -hmm. right? He is in heaven, not currently exerting uh, the fullness of his authority in the same way we see him doing in Revelation 19, where he comes down and he um, slays... Uh, all who serve in justice and establishes his reign of justice. And so I think that there's a way in which this is meant to be a formative part of the prayer. It it tells us something. It tells us first that um, the kingdom that we're a part of is God's. Mm-hmm. You know, we're also Americans, or if you're not American, you're a citizen of whatever country <laughs> you're from, right? I'm a Lexingtonian, I'm a Kentuckian, I'm an American. Um, and it's true that I belong to those communities and places. Um, But those are not like the central um, citizenship or the central identity to my life. Um, I'm first and foremost a member of the kingdom of God. And so I think when I pray this part of the prayer, it's meant to work in me and work on me in a way that's meant to direct my gaze and my loyalty to Christ as my King. It's meant to remind me that I am a servant of Christ that I live in a kingdom that belongs to Him, um, and I'm meant to look to Him for my help. You know, um, we're praying in the Lord's Prayer, and the thing that happens when you pray is you, you're asking someone to do something, or you're rendering worship and praise. You're, you're um, confessing, you're asking for help, and you're rendering praise. And these are all activities that I think we we do to. Um, people in the world, like our, our Caesars, we have the right to petition in the First uh, First <laughs> Amendment, right? Petition for redress. Um, and so we go when we ask our Caesars to come and make things right. Um, and I think there's a temptation in all of us to kind of make our political leaders our saviors or to make the people of the world um, the mm-hmm. people that we're putting our faith in to um, achieve the things that we're wanting to achieve, um, and so we, we make, you know, and this, I think this is really, uh, relevant for now. This is being recorded like, three weeks before mm-hmm. 2020 election. Um, yeah, there's a, I don't know if you pay attention to the debates and pay attention to all the panic that's happening in the world right now. There's this kind of sense where politics has become apocalyptic, where, mm-hmm. um, we're on the, the, the edge of the end of the world. Uh, where one, pe- one group thinks that like our guy is going to save us from the world falling apart, and the other group is thinking the same thing about their guy, and each views the other group as being the enemy who's going to lead us into oblivion. And I think there's something really beautiful about the Lord's Prayer, and something also really beautiful about Revelation, the end of Revelation, that tells us that when we try and make our like local human institutions When we try and put a kind of apocalyptic weight on them, we make messiahs out of political figures, uh, and we think that the end of the world is coming about because of a a particular political person or policy. Um, I think this prayer is helping to try and reform us and reform us um, and change that tendency in our lives to do that and direct it to the person who's actually going to bring justice, the person who's actually going to bring truth, um, the person whose reign, all of these little Caesars, are just kind of a shadowy image Mm -hmm. of, even when they're acting um, rightly and justly. And so I find this in my life to be at least a piece of the Lord's prayer that's formative, deeply formative, in that it helps me direct my gaze to the one who can actually um, achieve what I'm desiring in my prayer, and the person uh, who really is on the throne and ruling. Um, I think one of the reasons we chose, or I chose Revelation 19, is because what's cool is I think this passage shows us what a, a Christ who's reigning looks like. There's a temptation to think that uh, the Caesars really are in control and um, Christ is distant and he's not really um, working for justice now. There's a sense in which the fullness of Christ's reign has not yet happened. But I also think that this is meant to show us who Christ is now, mm-hmm. right? He is our king, right? It's not saying in the Lord's Prayer, yours is the kingdom later. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, for yours, for thine is the kingdom now, right? It's asking for the kingdom that is currently um, in heaven to come to earth, thy kingdom come, right? So Christ is already reigning. He is already our King. And I think Revelation 19 is a good image of what that looks like. What does it look like when Christ is our King? Mm -hmm. He comes in with like this flaming sword to come and destroy evil in our hearts, in our lives and eventually in the, in the whole world. So yeah, I think this is a formative part of the prayer that shows Christ is the King, not just in the future, but, but now.
0: Yeah. Like we can just see that like in Jesus's time in the time of revelation and today, like the, there is this tendency in humankind to seek people to be like where we put our identity or who we idolize. Like, in the time of Jesus and like even the early church, like Caesar was God. Like they worshiped Caesar. Mm-hmm. And there, a lot yeah. of persecution occurred to Christians because they refused to worship Caesar as their God. And to us today, it's like, that's weird to worship a man as God, but we literally still do that today, even within our politics. And so we still continue to see this tendency. And by declaring this line, for thine is the kingdom, we are like kind of readmitting what our who our mm. identity is, and it's more in Christ like that is our central identity and Yes, like you said, we are also civilians in Lexington, and we are part of these different communities, but we are at our core and first and foremost an identity with christ
1: yeah and this doesn't mean that we are non-political or apolitical and it doesn't mean we like retreat from the public square also if y'all start hearing something weird it is starting to thunderstorm really bad yeah it
0: is
1: (laughs) um so lightning and rain you might hear it but uh, this doesn't mean that we're apolitical or anti-political but it does mean that when we are political we're meant to be uh political in the right way which is never to make a political figure our savior never to confuse God's kingdom with our kingdom, um, and always to serve first and foremost, God and his kingdom. And it, I think this is a helpful daily reminder that we belong to God and he really is the king.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's move on to the second line, which is, and the power and the glory. So what, what can we take from that?
1: Yeah. I mean, there, there's a central question. and I think we addressed it maybe in a podcast a couple of weeks ago, which is, you know, does, does God hear our prayers? Does he have the power mm-hmm. to, uh, affect our prayers? Um, for me, I think this is a kind of assuring line in the Lord's Prayer. You've just prayed mm-hmm. for all of this stuff, and then you get to the end, and what do you have to declare that He has the power to do all of that? Mm-hmm. So, I meant, I think this is also meant to try and train us and teach us that when we pray to God, we're praying to a person who can actually do the things that we desire to be done. We, we're we praying to a person who actually will achieve the good, who will bring a kind of lasting Justice, a God who will accomplish all of the things that the deepest longings and stirrings of our heart do. Um, And this is, again, this is something that our Caesars can't do, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I think in the Leader's Guide, uh, I included one of my favorite poems called Ozymandias, which was written (laughs) by uh, Shelley. And uh, it's about uh, an Egyptian pharaoh, and it's a beautiful little poem, but uh, it's about a statue of this guy and uh, in this it's in the middle of the desert and it's surrounding by, it's surrounded by nothing and it's crumbling. But on the pedestal, it reads, um, you know, here's Ozymandias, king of kings, look upon my mighty works uh, and despair, right? And what is everything that's around him? It's nothing. It's just a desert and his statue is crumbled. And I think that there's this, it's a beautiful image of what happens when we try and trust um, something less than God, something that is merely mortal, um to uh to fix all of our problems which is that they don't have the power to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing but God has the power to bring lasting justice. Nothing but God has the power to bring the kingdom of justice to earth. Nothing but God has the power to forgive us of our sins and and no one um but God can finally and fully uh answer our prayers that can't even give us our our daily bread. They can give us some like literal bread but mm-hmm. they'll never give you the bread of life. Um, and so I think that this end of the prayer is a way of declaring kind of prophetically and also, um, praying in our own hearts that we would believe this as we pray it, that God really is the person, the only person capable of of doing all of those things that we just prayed for him to do. So I see it as a kind of like moment of assurance in the prayer, right? Here's all this stuff I prayed for. God, you can do it. Mm -hmm. You have the power uh, and it's for your glory to
0: do it. Yeah, and admittedly, like we're talking about this even before the election that's about to happen. But a lot of our groups will be talking about this after that. So maybe even this is just like a good reassurance of like, no matter the outcome, like God is the one in true power.
1: Yeah, and this is it's demonstrated in, in Revelation 19. Right, I want to keep tying this to Revelation mm-hmm. 19. And yeah. the reason we're talking about politics so much is Revelation 19 is like a very political section here. Um, when the the white writer comes in uh what does he do he he slays it says it here he uh he gathers together for a feast of of the carrion the birds that eat dead dead things and he tells the birds to gather together to eat the flesh of kings and generals mighty men horses and their riders the flesh of all people f- free and slave small and great um i think there's a sense in which um, Revelation 19 is showing us what the power of Christ is, which is He is eternally powerful, eternally good. It says that His name in Revelation 19 is faithful and true. Um, he is the only person with the power to to finally and fully finish injustice, Mm -hmm. right? So he comes and he slays the beast, the symbol of injustice, and he comes and he takes all of the kingdoms and all of the powers and the principalities and the rulers that work for injustice, those who have rejected the feast of the lamb, which is talked about in Revelation 19.9, all of the forces and people uh, that are working for injustice, Christ is eventually going to come and finally defeat. Only Christ has the power to come and finally defeat injustice. It's promised to us at the end of Revelation and it's shown to us. It's shown what his power is, um, in Revelation 19. He is the only one capable of doing it. And, uh, I think this is a kind of interesting way of looking at it. That he casts all of these, these people and these figures, all of this injustice, the final enemy of death is thrown into a burning, a lake of burning sulfur. Um, And it's Christ who does this. He's the only one that can do this. So I think Revelation 19 is is a demonstration of Christ's power and Christ's glory. And I think Revelation 19 also explicitly uh, connects this. So the first verse of Revelation 19, which you're not reading in groups, but which sets the stage for verses 11 through the end of it. First verse is the great multitude of heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. Um, And so when I hear for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, like my mind trips to Revelation Hmm. 19, what does it look like for salvation to come with power and glory? It's Christ coming to finally end the forces of evil for good.
0: Amazing. Okay. So let's go look at this last little part. It says forever and ever. Amen.
1: Yeah. um, This is the end of the prayer. And I think this whole thing, this doxology, right, is, is a form of, worship and praise. Um, it's a way of praying for all of these things. These are also kind of, as we've been describing here, they have content themselves. Uh, they are about Christ's power, his glory. It is a declaration that Christ is the kingdom. Um, but they also form a kind of prayer and a kind of praise. It's a song. It's what doxology kind of means. Uh, there are there are various doxologies throughout the, uh, the New Testament, but these are songs of praise that kind of end a great uh, section of scripture. And so I think it might just be helpful for a minute to think, well, why did sh- Christ choose to um, end his prayer? What the prayer he taught his disciples with praise. Uh, and I think that's because prayer and praise go hand in hand, mm-hmm. uh, prayer and praise. It, you must praise God and, and start turning your heart toward God um, through worship and praise. I think in order to become a better to become better at prayer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um that these are things that work hand in hand. I think it was J.I. Packer said something about like prayer and praise are like the two wings of a bird. Mm-hmm. And if you only have one, it's not going to fly. But when you have both, you can you can soar. Um and so I think this is part of the reason why worship and praise is so central to the heart of the Christian life. From the very beginning of the church, even before, I mean in um in in the Jewish religion as well Um, the, the Psalms were their prayer and praise book, their worship book. Um, and so I think ending in praise is one of the ways that we even non-cognitively start to orient our lives toward um, God by entering the practice of singing and of worship. Um, we're attuning our hearts to God, uh, which is a process that will only help increase our prayer life. Um and so why are we praising Christ? Because he is the person that shows up in Revelation 19, mm-hmm. right? He is the person worthy of praise because he is the person who is going to finally and fully establish justice and bring the good and make the good the true and the beautiful the thing which rules all over the world. So that thing, that person Christ is worthy of not only our petitions but also and our prayers. But also worthy of our our praise and our, our hearts and adoration and devotion. So I think kind of adoration here um, is an essential part of prayer. We must learn to adore Christ. Um, that will uh, that will change our prayers and it will change us ultimately.
0: Yeah. So um, this now brings us to the end of the Lord's prayer, which just says Amen. So like this is the end of this section of the cultivate um, curriculum where we're talking about prayer. So CJ, either from this or from all of the weeks we've done over prayer? Like, what do you want people to take home? You can pick one of those questions or both. Uh,
1: I have no idea. Um, I think what I really want is for people just to pray more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've on, on my best days, right. This is the Lord's prayer has become a prayer. That's a a daily routine. Um, And so I would just encourage people. If you don't know how to start with intimacy with the Lord, the Lord's prayer is a great way to start. It takes like 15 seconds to say, which, you know, if you're starting off and you don't pray every day, it's a great place to start. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to say the Lord's prayer every day. Um, Still yourself for even a minute and just say the prayer. And even if you don't feel like you're meaning it, well, say the prayer prophetically over your own heart, right? Pray it as if you're asking the Lord to give you this prayer, Mm -hmm. to make it the prayer of your heart. If you don't find it, it's your immediate desire (laughs) Pray it prophetically <laughs> that it might become your desire, yeah. um, and then for those of us who also who who have gone through um, habits of prayer, I think this is also a prayer whose depths uh, can never be fully mined. And so, um, I would just make this a part of your daily daily routine: is to pray the Lord's prayer, meditate on the prayer that Christ taught us to pray, um, so that we can come to love. God better through it
0: Yep, that's so good thanks so much CJ again this was the last week of the Cultivate podcast honestly I guess you will be listening to this before Thanksgiving so happy Thanksgiving right thanks yep. CJ so much
1: all right